0: This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today. I have to say, I don't often gush when it comes to getting on guests because we've had some incredible guests uh, that have come through so far. But this one is right up there for a whole range of reasons. Uh, David Meltzer, uh, co-founder of Sports One Marketing and former CEO of Light and Steinberg Sports and Entertainment Agency, which I should point out uh, is responsible for the inspiration of one of my all-time favorite movies, Jerry Maguire. David has also been featured on ESPN, TEDx, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Bloomberg, Variety, just to name a few. You're a three-time international bestseller, top 100 business coach. Uh, you are in the Forbes top 10 keynote speakers. You've just launched your latest book, uh, Game Time Decision Making. Uh, and you literally have a mission that is to empower over a billion people to be more happy uh, through what it is it you do. You have Fortune 100 companies from all over the world. You've worked with startups all the way through to massive companies. You are renowned for being the man when it comes to, you know, getting a message out there and accelerating a growth in the business it is an awesome pleasure to have you on unstoppable today david welcome to the studio mate i cannot tell
1: you how excited i am to be here unstoppable is my life uh i think mantra i am the chairman of the unstoppable foundation uh, which we build uh, villages and and schools all in right now kenya and africa a little bit of in india Uh, So I wrote a book called Unstoppable, Creating the Life You Love with Jack Canfield from Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, So unstoppable is also the common denominator (laughs) of all successful people, meaning you need to have the desire that you must be what you can be. And if you have the desire to must be what you can be, you will be unstoppable.
0: And, um, I think when you look at your story, like you really are the epitome of, of that, uh, of that mantra, you know, I think oftentimes people look at successful people and they often think that, that they came out of the box that way, you know, and, uh, especially, you know, with the, depending on people's backgrounds and, and family and everything else. But what I'm curious to know about you and also explore, because as I said before we jumped on this call, normally I don't do any uh, research on anyone, but I kind of have an unfair advantage here. I already know a little bit about you, but there's some stuff that I don't know. And so I'm really curious to know more about where your story begins, you know, because as I said, some people are born into the life uh, of success and it becomes almost a part of the environment that they grow up in. What's your story? Where does your story begin, mate?
1: Well, first, I was born out of
0: the box, happy and optimistic. So that's
1: my quantum superpower is that I was born a optimist, the top of the, of the optimist. And I, uh, at five years old, my dad left. Um, I had a single mom with six kids. And one of the greatest blessings of my life is my mother and the challenges that she faced because I got to watch her work two jobs, pack my dinner in a paper bag, fill up six kids into a station wagon, have a self-educate, in the station wagon, putting all types of pressure. I have extraordinary mom. My siblings all ended up summa cum laude at the best schools in the world, Harvard, Penn, Columbia. Uh, I was the only one not to go to the Ivy Leagues because I had a different relationship. Uh, my mom, uh, I resisted uh, her great sayings, right? Doctor, lawyer, failure. Uh, my mom was an extraordinary mom. I told you she worked two jobs, but you know she was a black belt in the martial arts. I tell everyone, the reason that all six of her children are so happy and healthy and successful is she was a third degree in the black belt art of Jewish guilt. She could guilt <laughs> um, and, and everybody laughs, but I'm like, I'm serious, man. I still am afraid yeah. of my mom to hurt her feelings or to disappoint her. Um, but my journey was a relationship to money. I would sit in the back of the car and my older siblings would tell me I had to study and I'd tell them to F off at a very young age that I was gonna be rich. I was gonna buy my mom a house and a car. In fact, I remember distinctly at five years old telling my oldest brother, who wanted to be a doctor since he was five years old, and he ended up being a doctor. Uh, I told him that I was gonna make a million dollars and I was gonna buy my mom a house, a car and retire on that million dollars. Uh, I made a million dollars nine months out of law school. and. Uh, there wasn't enough left over for any retirement. It was all the house and the car, uh, but that's okay. Uh, but I was learning my relationship to money. And the interesting thing is my mom didn't care about money. She cared about investing in her children and building a relationship and a le- legacy through education. Uh, and so I kind of tiptoed my way through education, but I learned at a very young age to me that money was gonna buy me happiness and love. And the reason I thought that was that I had so much happiness and love in my life with no finances that the only thing that made my mom cry or the only thing that made me disappointed is I lived in the world of not enough. There wasn't enough food, house, car. I, I was living in a world of why me? Even though I was an optimist saying that someday it will be me, I couldn't understand why I had to have so much financial stress. And I'd catch my mom crying When a car would break down or she was worried about how she was going to educate us or feed us, that I was burning with desire to buy my mom a house and a car. I knew that I'd be so happy if I could just be financially successful. It was the only hole in my life. And so my relationship with that currency of money became very substantial throughout my career, and it was also my downfall.
0: Mm. They say that voids breed values, Um, and I can relate. I grew up single mom on a pension, uh, two boys, and there was not a lot of stuff around. And so by virtue, we build this desire to want more. And so I'm curious, like when you identified that you realized that this substance or this currency that we call money could potentially provide you something that you didn't have, at what point did you put the rubber to the road and go, okay, uh, I'm now of the age where I can start making money. What did that look like? How did it start?
1: Well, for me, it started at a young age because I wanted to be a professional athlete. And so I had to start at a young age and I wasn't born with much talent, but I learned this amazing ability to enjoy the consistent everyday, persistent without quit pursuit of my own potential. And this started at a very young age to pursue the best that I had in me. And I ended up getting a scholarship to play American football in college and I will tell you that every single year I tried to play football people laughed at me, scoffed at me, made fun of me. By the end of the season they were applauding me whether it was the Pop Warner Leagues, the Mini Leagues or the junior high school, high school or even in college where I ended up you know for an undefeated team uh, being a defensive captain uh, you know I thought for sure that I would be a professional athlete And that's where I was gonna make my money. So I put everything into being athletic. Uh, Now I was very academically inclined. So my grades were always good. I never wanted to disappoint my mom out of respect. I always pretended like I was a good student by getting good grades, but it really came easy for me. The interesting thing is my first year in college, I got ran over and the man who ran me over was later on the AFC, American Football Conference Player of the Year. His nickname was the Nigerian Nightmare. His name is Christian Okoye. In fact, uh, The Rock, if you remember Rampage, the movie with the the big uh, gorilla, he named the gorilla Okoye because Christian Okoye is his favorite player. I'll tell you, Christian Okoye ran me over. I was laying on my back my freshman year of college and I remember saying to myself, Dr lawyer or failure work. <laughs> 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 so i wanted to be a doctor because my oldest brother was a doctor and that's when i learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life i at the end of my football season went to visit i was 18 years old and i went to visit my older brother who was a doctor and i went and visited him he's in the hospital and i looked at him and i said hey man i hate hospitals he almost fell over he's like david you're, you're pre-med. God knows you're not going to be a professional athlete. W- what do you mean you hate hospitals? You want to be a doctor? I said, well, I want to be a sports physician. You know, I'll be on the sidelines and in locker rooms. I'm not going to be in a hospital. And he looked at me shaking his head and just like, in, in, like total dumb. And I, I have three teenage daughters, so I know the look I have <laughs> on my face a lot of times, but he looked at me and he said, David, you need to be more interested than interesting. And man, that hit me, more Mm. interested than interesting. I'd lived my life wanting to make money. I I, I didn't know anything about anything. And I shifted my paradigm to, okay, I'm going to make this happen. I better get and do my due diligence and research. So doctor, lawyer, failure, I quit pre-med. I went pre-law and I reversed engineered to the biggest, highest paying legal job that I could. I did all my research and found out that oil and gas litigators they made the most money. I did my research and found the law school in the United States that had the most kids that got hired by oil and gas companies, you know, Shell and Chevron and all these companies. And so I worked really hard with that same consistent persistent pursuit of my potential. The only difference was when I finally got that attitude towards school compared to sports that my genetics were much more suited to be a great academic uh, than they were to be a great football player. And so I did really well. I got into the law school of my choice. Uh, When I graduated, another interesting thing, I got the job of my dreams. I got an oil and gas job, six figure job, right out of law school. I'm 24 years old, no problem. Gonna buy my mom a house and a car. But the interesting thing about my relationship to money is when all you really want to do is be rich you keep your options open so unlike my siblings who were you know doctors and lawyers and you know academics that were put their lives in a box i was always looking to who would pay me more and i ended up getting a job offer in the internet in 1992 now i asked my mom what i should do because it was a sales job and the comp plan was $250,000 a year which was about 100000 more than the legal job. So I asked my mom, you know, what should I do? I really think I could sell this internet thing. I think it's going to be a big deal. You know, it's 1992. It's not a big deal yet. My mom looks at me and says, David, the internet's a fad. You're going to lose everything. Don't do it. Be a real lawyer. Don't disappoint me, please. And that's where my second valuable lesson came. I realized at a young age, at 24, that just because someone loves me, nobody's still, I'm 53 years old this week, and nobody still loves me more than my mom. She loves me too much and thinks too highly of me. But just because she loves me, doesn't mean she gives me good advice. I learned at 24, the who rule of my life. Meaning if you want to get somewhere, you better find who is already there and ask them for directions. And I found, people in the situation that I wanted to be in. I took the job selling legal research online at 24 years old, nine months out of law school. I was a millionaire. I bought my mom that house. I bought her a car. And now the tragedy of that was that this idea that money buys love and happiness was reinforced throughout the rest of my 20s everything i did i was midas man everything i did reaffirmed money bought love and happiness including you know number one we sold the company for 3.4 billion dollars in 1995. i raised hundreds of millions of dollars in the silicon valley i ran a wireless proxy server company and then ended up ceo of the world's first smartphone but even more than that i married my dream girl The girl I met in the fourth grade, who my best friend Rob asked to go study at sixth grade camp, and he said, no, tell him to ask me himself, and he screamed it out that she wouldn't go out with me and embarrass me, so I threw an egg at her. So somehow, she hated me in junior high, high school, college, law school, hated me somehow now that I was rich, and my wife, I don't mean it this way, because we've been married 24 years, and you'll find out she has stuck with me through some really to prove that she loves me wasn't the money. Let's just put it that way. We'll get to that part of the story. But to be honest, in my mind, when I was 30 years old, running the world's first smartphone division for Microsoft, the Windows C device, and Samsung, I was a multimillionaire with my dream girl. Money bought me love, money bought me happiness. And until 30, I had no indication to change my mind or my philosophy or my paradigm, I was extremely generous. I always believed the more I gave, the more I would get. Even that paradigm would shift for me in my thirties as I became CEO of the world's most notable sports agency, Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment, my life would change and I'd learn extremely valuable lessons on the paradigms and the currency of money.
0: So how did you transition from technology to sports?
1: Well, for me- Was it
0: chasing the money?
1: The same again? absolutely and it was yeah. to my, my ego right so one of the advantages when you are money driven um and i'll get to my relationship to money as we go through the story but mm. one of the advantages is you're always looking at your skills you're not looking at the profession so i was always looking at the skills that i had the knowledge of who and what that i had and the desire to be the best at whatever I wanted to do. I never believed, and my wife always joked around, you're so lucky, you've always loved what you did. No, I love the money, but I learned to love the activity I got paid for. I don't ever, Mm -hmm. and haven't ever believed in work. I believe in activity you get paid for, and activity you don't get paid for. I believe in taking inventory of my skills, my knowledge, and my desire, in order to find what's synergistic or supplementary to what's doing well, what's stable, Or what i think would do well now because i had a sports background because it was the most notable sports agency i had great skills to do two things that are important as a sports agent one i know how to get a client but even more importantly i know how to keep one and my wife is absolutely the proof of how good of a sports agent i would be because i always say Mm -hmm. if you can walk into a bar and get the prettiest girl to leave with you And then to stay with you you'll be a great sports agent and i'm able to do that and i knew that was one of my skills
0: okay so i i get the feeling that we're moving towards um uh, an off the cliff moment here you know you talk about and you've said it a number of times now your relationship with money um and it sounds like early in your career up until your 30s that was something that drove a lot of the decisions that you made um at what point did the tide start to shift. To the tide start to change. And 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 how did it change? And how did it impact you? Well,
1: money defined me. My nickname was Money Money. My nickname was Midas Meltzer. I got hired to be, you know, the CEO of the most noble sports agency because they could use me as an example of how I was going to take care of athletes' money. And athletes were bound, seventy-five percent of them, to be bankrupt. So to tell the parents that here was this financial academic, secured lawyer that can make sure, knows how to not only negotiate the deal, but create a legacy with that money, to let that money grow and support the family. Boy, well, my life had three things that changed. When I was 30 years old, a multimillionaire, just married to my dream girl, my dad, who had been estranged from me for 20 years. My dad was my hero at five when he left. In fact, one of the biggest points of guilt that I have Is that I would sit in the station wagon. My dad was in America, what they call a deadbeat dad. He was wealthy, but he didn't give any child support or support to my mom. Well, I'm in the back of that station wagon on food stamps asking my mom why she can't be more like my dad. And my mom was so humble, never said a word. But when I was 10 years old, my dad went from hero to zero. He forgot my birthday. And what that wasn't bad enough, but what killed me was when I asked him, Dad, how could you forget my birthday? He said, I didn't forget your birthday. I don't believe in birthdays. Now, he had celebrated my sibling's birthday, my mom, like my stepmom's birthday, who was like closer to my age than his, and he celebrates his birthday. So at that moment, at 10 years old, I hated my father because he was a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, an overseller, and a back-end seller. And I wanted nothing to do with him. At 30, my dad sent me a birthday gift. And I started to cry when I put it on. It was a sport coat and it fit perfectly. And I wife, I remember my wife saying, Why are you stop crying? It's you know, it's just a gift. I said, No, he took the time to find out what size I was. This is he's changed. I'm going to, more than anything, I wanted my dad to be proud of me. He never told me he was proud of me. We didn't have a relationship. I wanted that approval from my father, which I found out drives so many people, you know, to prove to their, their dad something. And for me, you know, I opened the jacket to see, does it say, you know, especially made for Dave Meltzer's 30th birthday or Armani or something special. He tore all the lining and pockets out of my jacket. I was crushed. I picked up my phone. I called him. I screamed at him. Why are you punishing me? He said, "What are you, son, what are you talking about? I said, I've waited all these years, and I thought that you were asking for my forgiveness, that you understood what I felt, and how bad it was that you forgot my birthday 20 years ago, and you haven't been there for me. I just wanted you to tell me that you love me, and you're proud of me, and you send me a jacket I can't even wear. He said, son, it's not for wearing. said what do you mean it's not for wearing he said it's to remind you that money doesn't buy happiness it's to remind you not to make the same mistakes as i have it's to remind you you can't be the richest man in the cemetery i want you to hang the jacket in the closet to remind you of me i said of you you're just like me son i said dad i'm nothing like you i hate you you're a liar you're a cheater, a manipulator, overseller, back end seller. I'm nothing like you. F you. And I hung up on him. Six years went by, and the second change catalytic thing would happen. I was now running the most notable sports agency in the world. I had access to everything, Super Bowl, Masters, Pro Bowl, Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, Espes, Emmys, Oscars, with the greatest celebrities, private jets, anything you could ask for, a multimillionaire in my 30s running the most notable sports. They did the movie Jerry Maguire about my firm. There's nothing I couldn't do. So my best friend, Rob, who is my best friend since the fourth grade, yes, he's the guy that asked my wife to go steady for me. I took him golfing and I said, Rob, I wanna take you to the Masters. I know you love golf. It's the greatest sporting event on earth. It never disappoints. We're gonna go with Curtis Strange into the back cabins. We're gonna to go to the NetJet party. You're gonna meet Wayne Gretzky and Warren Moon and all these amazing athletes. Please come with me. He looked at me and he said, not a chance. I said, what do you mean not a chance? He said, Dave, I don't like who you hang out with and I definitely don't like what you're doing. Now, I realized at that moment, at 36 years old, that I only had one person in my life that wasn't giving me a yes for an answer. Mm. My mom, my wife, all my friends, I'd bought my way in. Money had bought that love and happiness and I was crushed. I looked at him, I said, Rob, I'm not doing what those guys are doing. He said, David, you can lie to me, but don't lie to yourself. And he walked away. I was torn. I, I couldn't breathe. I, and the reason was I knew it was true. I knew I had surrounded myself with the wrong people, the wrong ideas. I had lost stock in who I was. I was miserable. I was buying things to be happy. If I wasn't happy, I'd buy more things. If it wasn't happy, I'd buy it I was buying things to impress people I didn't even like. And money left me empty. It left me shallow and sad. And I couldn't understand or reconcile it. And then two weeks later, my life would change forever. I asked my wife, uh, we had three young daughters under eight years old at the time. I asked my wife if I could go to the Grammy Awards with a famous rap star, uh, Little John. He's fairly famous now, especially. And John had invited me to go stand on stage at the House of Blues and go to the Grammy Awards with him. My wife told me at that time, I don't think it's a good idea. You're not paying attention to the family. You're not paying attention to your job. You are partying way, way too much, and I'm really worried about you. Please stay home with me. I lied to her, told her I had a business meeting. I went to the Grammy Awards. I came home at 5.30 in the morning, completely wasted, and there she was waiting for me to change my life. I. W- walked in and she looked at me and she said, I'm not happy. I said, what? What are you talking about? The need to be offended came right out. You know, the greatest and easiest fed need in the world. Like, what are you, who do you think you're talking to? Look around you, the Ferrari, the Porsche, the boat, the motorhome, the house, the kid, who do you think you're talking to? You're not happy. What is there not to be happy about? She said, you, and I'm going to leave you. And you better take stock in who you were and what you want to become because you're going to end up dead. And I don't want to be around. I wish I would have told you at that moment, I understood what my dad was trying to tell me six years earlier. or Rob was trying to tell me two weeks earlier. And I looked at her and I said, I hate you. And I went to bed and I woke up enraged, going to take all my love away from her. Meaning I'm going to call a divorce lawyer and take all the money, see what I could do to hurt her. And I sat there thinking about who and what I was gonna do. And then I looked over in my closet. I'll never forget. Out of nowhere, there's that jacket staring at me, man. Staring at me, still today, chokes me up because I looked at it and I realized I don't hate my father. That my father, I didn't hate him, I hated myself. I was a liar. I was a cheater. I was a manipulator, overseller, back end seller. I better make a change. And from that day on, I took stock in who I was and created four values that I live by today. I've evolved with five daily practices that I utilize to expend and expand that value. I live to give my life away. This paradigm shift, I no longer would believe that money buys happiness and love, but it still was important. What I realized that I had a gift to make money, but money wasn't gonna buy me happiness or love, it was only gonna allow me to shop. And I was gonna shop for the right things, not the things I didn't need, not the things to impress other people, but things that I could give away to help other people, to make a lot of money, to help a lot of people, to have a lot of fun in my life, to provide happiness, a mission of providing happiness to over a billion people, a mission to empower people, to empower people, to make more money, help more people and have more fun. I gave money to make people. I gave money to receive. It was a trade. It was a negotiation. I shifted that paradigm. I now, I don't live in the world of not enough. Nothing happens to me as a victim. I don't live in the world of just enough where things happen for me to buy things I don't need to impress people I don't like. I live in a world of abundance, a world of more than enough of everything for everyone where I receive so I can give. Everything comes through me. I am here from nowhere. I'm now here to give my life away. Just like my dad tried to teach me when I was 30. I live my life with no pockets. I receive through me for others to give my life away. And the more I expand and accelerate that, the more I have to give away. And you can't give what you don't have. And I live by those values of gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, and inspiration. And those values are core to who I am every day and are the basis of all decisions that I make.
0: You've opened so many loops that I wanna go down. Uh, I really have to kind of, uh, <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Cause there's just so much depth to your story, which I think so many people can relate to. Um, and there's lots of different things that I'm hearing. Um, but the one that I really want to narrow in on for a second is your dad. Um, something I can relate to. Uh, I didn't have my father around for you know, most of my, uh, most of my uh, young and adult life. Uh, and it's not that he's a bad guy and we don't get on. He's a great guy. We just don't have that um, paternal, con- maternal connection. He's more like just uh, an associate, I guess you could say. But he's a good guy. But one of the things that I discovered around boys breeding values, you know, my pursuit of money came from growing up with no money. Um, and then I discovered also, you know, I grew up with no father, no, not even a father figure, but what I discovered at the age of 13, I started designing in my head, the ideal dad that I was going to become as a result of, cause I had one, you know, I had a friend over here who had, he was like the Disneyland dad, you know, high fives and, you know, and theme parks. And I had another friend, uh, over here who would get drunk every night and slap his son around. And I used to witness that. And so I used to get to see both sides. I was like, man, I really like that. And I don't like that. But what do I want to become as a dad? And I remember 13 years of age starting to design what I wanted to be as a father, and waiting until I was mature enough to be able to really embody, you know, the essence and the traits that were required to give everything that I thought I didn't have. Um, and so I had my first my first child at the age of 39, and as a result, it's of my upbringing. It's driven me to be very present in my family, very present as a father, but it's driven me to be to go above and beyond as a dad. I'm curious from your perspective, how is the relationship with your dad, you know, his absence uh, and the dynamics that played out, how has that influenced you as a dad?
1: Three things. One, not only being present, you know, but in, in keeping and maintaining my marriage as a, as a priority, um, you know, as I've evolved. But three things. One, to consistently make sure that my kids know I love them. You know, I probably overstate it all the time, over it, but I love them too. Uh, And you'll hear this from the story. I have a saying, right? I love you. I'm proud of you. Very important to me for them to know all times that I'm proud. I still choke up just saying I'm proud of you because I never heard it. And then the other one is interesting too is I always have your back. So the three things that i was missing as you stated are the three things that i define myself as a father that my kids know i love them unconditionally that they are a priority to everything except for my health which just has shifted in the last few years by the way i put my health before my family for the first time because i got smart but moreover i'm proud of them and i always have their back uh you know i i, I want them to know no matter what they do that i have their back
0: and so how has that influenced you as a dad when it comes to discipline? How do you discipline your kids and provide, because to me, discipline is, is twofold. It's not just how do we respond when our kids require a correction. It's also what are the structures that we put in place, you know, to in order that there's a framework that people adhere to so that they grow up in a healthy way. What does discipline look like in your house first of all how many kids have you got now because i've seen that you've got four four how old are they 21 19
1: and 16 other girls and a 10 year old boy
0: yeah i saw the 10 year old boy i saw the videos and my heart melted because as soon as i saw that i was like because that was the one thing i didn't see And i was like oh man you and i are going to get on like a house on fire 21 19 16 and 10. i'm going to assume there's been an evolution of the dad in you oh, okay. and how you've evolved when it comes to perhaps how you provide a discipline and structure for your 21 year old versus how you provide a discipline and structure for your 10 year old not a lot of parents get the opportunity to have that kind of hindsight uh to be able to go okay this is take four you know i've got you know 11 years under my belt now i i think i can do a better job what have been the biggest lessons that you've learned around discipline and what does it look like in your household then versus now yeah.
1: Well, the the number one thing there was no discipline from me for the older kids. Uh, my wife maintained and provided all the discipline. I was the Disneyland dad.
0: The Disneyland uh, dad, yeah. because
1: yeah, I was traveling so much. I was paying attention to my, you know, my partying, and you know, I w- wasn't. Now I'm blessed because you know I look at my 21 year old especially, and I always say I could have 40 of these kids. She was an old soul. She was born you know, straight, like I can't even imagine like how easy this child is still today. Like she graduated college early with a full scholarship and you know, she's one of those people I had to like, hey, go out, have some fun. I haven't finished this yet. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And then the middle one is, is more like me. And so, but I was a Disneyland dad. I was just, my wife was a disciplinarian. She's done a tremendous job. The younger two though, when I learned, because I went through this paradigm shift and, and one wasn't born yet and the other was just an in, you know an infant basically when I went through my transformation, I learned that my kids are not for me. They're through me. My kids are through me. And I learned with the mentorship of my mom who's done an extraordinary job is that the kids will never listen to you, but they'll watch you. And when my mom told me that, and I realized what my older girls were watching, you know, in this huge home with these fancy cars and private planes and huge parties with their dad intoxicated at least, you know, every weekend, you know, what, what they were watching and compared to what they watch today. uh, You know, when I had my birthday, I told you this week and I received four of the greatest gifts I've ever received. These cards, they're more like books uh, Mm. about the way my kids feel about me and what they see and how proud they are and wow. lessons they've learned by watching me. Uh, and so for me, I don't need to discipline my kids. I talk through them. You know, I have an old, I'm lucky. I'm, the bookends, these are old souls. The 10 year olds going on a hundred, you know, he, uh, I'll give you quick insight just cause I have to seven years old. He comes home, tells me there's a bully and he tells me the bully he got him out in tag ball. And he was so proud. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah. And then he took the ball and threw it on my head, dad. And I said, did you go tell, what'd you do? He said, oh, I did nothing. I said, well, you got to go tell the yard duty. That's dangerous. People can't throw balls at your head. He said, no, he's just insecure. This was at seven. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so the one that you've seen, he's an old soul. Um, But my philosophy is my kids, are through me and my job is to let them see and expose them and get them help and give them options. I I'm very open with drugs and sex and all the things and I just explain my own experience and I explain the damages mistakes etc and I leave them to make their own choices. I I let them make their own choices. I do my best to feel open to explain the consequences. You know, I'll say things like this, and this may or may not fit into people's parenting. I'll tell them straight out, you know, I've never met anyone who just tried heroin. Anyone I know who tried heroin either ended up dead or completely screwed up just from trying it. I've never heard of anyone and my friends are. It, this is all I know. And I said, if you want to try that, go ahead. But this has been my experience of that. And I know I used nicotine when I was young. I chewed tobacco and it took me years to quit. And I know heroin's more addictive than nicotine. I couldn't imagine what it's like. But if you want to try it, it's your life. These are the type of conversations that I have to help my kids make and empower them to make the right choices.
0: Well, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. The next question I was going to say is what does the conversation look like at the dinner table in the Meltzer household? And it's open. You talk about everything, right? It's
1: hilarious too. In fact, it would be the best reality show that I could ever do (laughs) Dinner with the Melchers. There's a couple Meltzer videos that you got to check out. It's like keeping up with the Meltzers that my 19 year old did (laughs) that are hilarious with me working in the closet. But I am telling you, if you knew what we talked about at the dinner table, uh, they would probably take my kids away. It probably- <laughs> 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 but my wife and I both are completely open and fun. Uh, people would pay tickets. And my kids' friends all love to come to the Meltzer dinners. And some of them, they're drooling on their, their food because their jaws are so wide open, especially the ones that grow up in very formal homes, where the parents don't talk about the things that we talk about.
0: So it seems to me like you've gone through quite a radical transformation with your relationship with money. I can only assume that's affected not just you intrinsically, but also extrinsically in how you use money to express you know, um, yourself and the things that you buy and where you put money. Has there ever been a situation in your life where you've lost everything and you've gone back to zero and you've had to start again?
1: Well, there's the funny part, right? We left the good part of the story out. Two years before right, is when my wife uh, told me to take stock, and I was so. Now, two years after, in two thousand and eight, the end of two thousand and eight, I lost everything—over a hundred million dollars. I lost everything. Now, that's not the bottom part. I, you know, I tell people my low, my you know, my bottom had a basement. I was so low when my wife told me that that day. But when I lost everything, I was in a completely different mindset. It was still challenging. You know, and you can't just lose that much money overnight. So it, it was a process of the cause and effect of how I had lived my life the past 10 years, uh, putting myself around the wrong people, wrong ideas, the wrong situations, not paying attention to my business, a variety of other things. But my biggest fears at that time was one, my wife, does she really love me for who I am? Or was it Ooh, important, right? Because yeah. like, here I went through this transformation and she the whole time was telling me, that she loved me and you know, this had nothing to do with money and she was so proud of me. And meanwhile, I just lost everything. I mean, moving vans coming up to evict us from our home. We had 33 homes that we lost, a golf course, a ski mountain. This is a real big shift. We went from living with anything that we wanted into a rented home with rented furniture and one car with three girls under 10 years old. And I was literally bankrupt. And my first paycheck, first I thought Lee Steinberg would fire me. Because remember, I told you, he hired me because I was financially a genius. Now, what are the athletes going to say? But imagine this is a low point. Thank goodness I had gone through the transformation. I had to go tell my mom that I was bankrupt. I had defined myself by my money. I had defined myself. I enabled my mom through financial support. through all. I spoiled my mom. Worse than I spoiled my kids. But I had to go tell her that I was bankrupt, but worse, I'd never taken her home out of my name. She had to move. My mom lost her house. I had to go tell, and that's when my life really, you know, changed as far as unconditional love because I thought my mom would be shattered. And when I went to her door, I couldn't speak. I started crying. And when I got the words out, my mom's like, what's the matter? Is everyone okay? I said, yeah, I lost everything, I'm bankrupt. And mom, I lost your house. She looked at me and asked me, Are you okay? Do you need any money? She didn't care one bit that I had lost her house. She, not one. And in my mind, my scarce mind that was still going through this transformation, all I could think about was me. I heard, like, all she could think about was me. Nothing about her. All I was still thinking and I looked at her and then very shortly after I brought home my first paycheck, Lee didn't fire me and I still made money, but look, I had over a hundred million dollars. You know, this is a big difference. Yes. I had a good paying job, but I was bankrupt. I came home with my first paycheck. My wife said, Oh, I said, Oh, I said, I'd like to give my wife and I went to the same high school. We've known each other since the fourth grade. I said, I'd like to give a part of the paycheck to give a scholarship to a kid that went to our high school so he can go to college. I never would have went to college without scholarship. My siblings never would have went to college. Is it okay? Can I give, I I want, you know, this is the new me. This is who I am. I'm gonna give my life away. Is this okay? We're gonna make our rent. We have plenty of food, but this is important. And she looks at me and started to cry. I said, what's the matter? I, I said, it's not okay, I won't do it. She said, no. You finally get it. You finally trust the universe. Oh. And she said, I said, yeah, I trust the universe. She said, then double it. And oh. I looked at her, I looked at her and I said, Don't trust the universe that much. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, to this day I think it's so important, because you know I do coach the biggest executives in the world to, to starting entrepreneurs, and the hardest blend for them to understand is the blend of the currencies. Money is an object of energy that you put into the flow to get what you want. And if you shop for the right things, you will ultimately be so happy. If you shop for the wrong things, you won't be. You'll be very, very sad. But there's a second currency that my wife and my mom had that I never did. And they were multi-billionaires in the second currency. It was faith, the object of energy that you put into the flow. My wife always lived happy where we were at, angling to something better for both of us, but she had faith that we'd always end up somewhere better than that. And that currency of faith has changed my life because I'm very good at the pragmatic currency, but I never had faith. I believed I was in control and I couldn't allow things to happen. I have the law of Goya totally down pat, get off my ass. I can work, You know, I would say strength and length, that's what I was born with. I Most people can work hard, but can you work hard for a really long time consistently with persistent behavior? I got strength and length when it comes to, to that capability, but no faith. I was always voting for what other people wanted, what was missing in my life. I was living in the world of just enough or not enough. And now finally, I had faith that there was more than enough of everything for everyone. And I kept striking and still do giving as much as I can away. I'm only here from nowhere to now here, and I'll end up nowhere again. But I'm going to give my life away, and that and that's how and how I'm going to do it is empower other people to do it as well.
0: Wow, I um I once uh, went on a bit of a process, a bit of a journey where I I guess you could call it a spiritual journey where I started to learn and become conscious of my ego, um, and the levels of bias and the judgment that it brought into my life and how it affected. You know, so many aspects of my perspective, so many interactions that I had. Uh, And then as I started to, I guess you could say, go through the process of trying to acknowledge it and become conscious of it. And I guess it's what people might refer to as, you know, a a level of dissolution of the ego. As I started to let or relinquish my ego, what I started to notice was the things that were really important to me started to get rattled. You know, as I started to surrender to the faith and the trust um, versus the control uh, of of the narrative in my head, I started to notice my my financial situation would get rattled, my relationships would get rattled to the point where it almost wanted me, it was almost begging me to buy back into the story. It was almost begging me to come back in, just come back to where it's safe and let's keep this story going. Let's try and control it because that's where safety is. And it took me a good couple of years of, I guess you could say, having a lot of really um what felt like at the time scary situations but on reflections some of the most beautiful experiences of my life to really identify and acknowledge what's really important and what's just a story in my head. I'm curious from you because you seem like a very aware human being how have you changed from the perspective of an having your own ego going back to where you were, you know, at the height of your career worth over a hundred billion dollars to where you are now, because I'm going to assume, because I, obviously I, I never got to speak to you then, but I speak to you now and you stand, sit before us today as a very humble man, you know, someone who's full of gratitude and, you know, got an enormous amount of kindness that just exudes from almost every pore of your body. But I'm going to assume that there was a possibility that you weren't this guy going back, you know, 21 years ago or even 15 years ago, like, who were you then and who are you now
1: yeah well you nailed it and i just wanted to say amen while you were talking because uh those struggles were my struggles those lessons were my lessons and uh i back then was an ego-driven person i had the need at all times to be right in fact that's how i lost all my money into lawsuits and other things with the need to be right i had a terrible and still uh fight a need to be offended i always say Gosh, I wish I could feed the world as easy as I could feed my offense. You know, I could walk outside and you have a need to be offended. It would hit you immediately. Uh, I have a need to be separate. I have a need to be inferior and superior. So I had trouble receiving. I didn't feel worthy of everything I had. I had a need to be angry and frustrated and anxious and scared. I had a need to be resentful, guilty. All of these were the needs of the ego. And I always tell people, man, if you could literally just reduce or dissipate or dissolve those needs of the ego imagine how much time emotion relationships and money you would have and so i created over the last 15 years my most essential practice and i've evolved from that ego driven narcissist the one who lived in the world of not enough in a scarce environment where i needed complete validation in so many different ways to what I call a ferocious Buddha. Uh, I never lost that desire that I must be what I can be, that innate positivity and optimism, but I became a ferocious Buddha, meaning one, step one was I was going to practice identifying what I was afraid of. I was gonna practice the primal fears that Einstein, uh, that Freud talks about, the you know need to fight, to flee, to be fed, and to procreate the other F word. But even more importantly, I was going to identify all these secondary needs of the ego that I listed out previously. And instead of fighting it, instead of resisting it when I identified it, instead of going over it, under it, through it, overselling it, back-end selling it, manipulating or lying about it, I was simply going to stop. I was going to create... What I've learned through meditation, through study, through transcendental studies, and all types of things—I sit on the Transformational Leadership Council with Jack Canfield and Bob Proctor and John Assaroff—and I write books with these people and I speak on stages. You know, I did the World's Greatest Motivators with the unbelievable minds of the world and Lisa Nichols and Reverend Beckwith and people who changed Wayne Dyer and unbelievable mentors of mine. But I'm just a Buddha. I stop. I drop by breathing, to my center, to neutral, knowing that my highest frequency is at center, that instead of being in control, I still utilize that law of Goya, but I also believe in the law of attraction that if I put forth that energy to my free will to clear the connection to what I'm already connected to, where my humility comes from, and it's radical, is that I only spend minutes and moments in ego now. I don't ever claim that I'll be able to give myself an egoectomy or beat the ego, but I've controlled it till it's minutes and moments. Mm -hmm. And I spend minutes and moments because everything comes through me from the greatest source of light, love and lessons. My relationship with pain used to be a stop sign. If I saw pain, that meant I had to overcome it. If I saw a mountain, I had to go overcome it. And now I see those things and I say, it's just an indicator. Pain is just an indicator, I have a lesson to learn. It's an indicator I have a better position to be in a better situation to make for myself or to make my situation better. Pain is a turn signal. It's not a stop sign. And the mountains in front of me, I no longer have to go over because that which walks with me built the mountain. It made the mountain. Mm -hmm. That which walks through me and inside of me made the mountain. I'm part of the mountain. And this philosophy of stop, drop, and roll that knowing that when the ego is in play, like you said, my mind, my body, and soul are on fire. All I need to do when I'm on fire is stop, drop down to center, to my neutrality, realize and, and be aware of what I'm connected to, and allow it to come through me to roll in the right trajectory instead of accelerating in the wrong one. Ego and the practice of ending fear in my life is the most important practice that I have. More in practice. More important than practicing taking inventory of my values, of my personal values, experiential giving and receiving, asking and attracting in my life, studying what I want to have a magical, uh, uh, mathematical equation of luck. What I pay attention to and what I give intention to equals the coincidences in my life. And even more important than doing things now and staying present is the practice of ending fear. And that's what truly has allowed me to accelerate and grow.
0: Wow, that's a beautiful. Beautiful response pain, waking people up since the dawn of time but out of respect. I am about five minutes over and I, I mean, do have, would do you mind if I asked you one more question? I would love Cause it. I've, I've got a title of uh, the podcast in my head, just on the conversation we've had that I think would really encourage people to listen to the incredible jewels that are on offer. How do you lose a hundred million dollars?
1: Ego. So, you know, you can't do it overnight. But literally, let me tell you, if you lose these values, let me gratitude, you need to have gratitude. I lost my gratitude. Gratitude allows you to have perspective. It allows you to find the light, the love, and the lessons. It allows you to learn from those lessons. It allows you literally to see the best in everything, to change. Remember, we give meaning to everything that we see. So gratitude gives us that meaning that we want. And it allows us to learn to love everything and to love everyone. It allows us to know that a tree has no branches, that one branch would not go to war against another branch. It allows me to find the superpower in everything and everyone. It allows me to be connected, empowered, and passionate and profitable. Secondly, forgiveness. I had no forgiveness. You can't give what you don't have. I lived with no forgiveness. I was better than, separate from. There was no forgiveness. And what I learned about forgiveness, not only does it bring peace, obviously, to your life by being forgiving, but the closer you can come to forgive the unforgivable, it'll actually bring certainty. Nothing else can bring you certainty into your life other than forgiveness. It's extraordinarily powerful. And then accountability. Accountability. Instead of believing I was in control and living in blame, shame and justification. Because if I didn't get it done, if it's not working out the way that I wanted, there must be someone else to blame. I was living in shame or justifying why it didn't happen. Instead, accountability, asking myself, what did I do to attract this to myself? And what am I supposed to learn from it? Gave me complete control. And separating liability from accountability was huge. There's still pragmatic worlds where People are liable for things that they do, but I'm accountable. Someone could smash into me. They could be liable to pay my damages, but I want to ask myself, what did I do for that to happen and what am I supposed to learn? And then finally, most importantly, the ability to be inspired, to understand that motivation is temporary. It'll get you up, get you back up. It'll get you started, get you back started. But fear can motivate us and fear is a soul sucker. But inspiration, when you can pursue The in spirit, meaning that I'm constantly and always connected to the greatest source of energy, light, and love, and it comes through me for others, that inspiration will get you there. And that's how I'm teaching people to empower other people simply to be happy. Remember this about happiness, everyone. Happiness is the greatest virus ever created. It's the only virus that's literally, you can catch it by witnessing it. You don't. You literally just have to witness happiness and you can be happy. And it strengthens you mentally, physically, emotionally, and financially. And the greatest thing about happiness, it'll strengthen your immune system. So it will protect you against all the negative things out there. It will stop attracting them to you. Happy people don't attract negative people. You put out a beacon of happiness, you will surround yourself with happy people and make more people happy. And if I can empower just a thousand people like you, to empower a thousand people, a thousand times a thousand a million, to empower one more thousand people. That's a billion people, collective consciousness, from Australia to America, to Asia, all the way down to South America, it doesn't matter. If we have a a billion people that are happy, a collective consciousness of happiness, one particle of light overcomes millions of particles of darkness, this whole world would be abundant. This whole world would change. There would be no judgments or conditions, less disease, less attacks. So let's all do our best with gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, and inspiration to empower others to be happy. And if we can do that, that my friend will make me happy. I have all the gratitude and forgiveness and accountability to be here. And I'm so, so happy I shared this time with you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. And um, I want to finish with the law of fair exchange. They say nothing is ever lost or ever gained. It's always in perfect balance. And as I listen to this, I don't hear a story of a man who lost 100 million. I, I, I heard a story of a man who gave 100 million in order to find himself. And for that and for you to share that, I I just want to thank you, mate, because uh, as I said, I don't gush over many guests, but you're one that has been on the radar for some time. And to have this experience and be able to share your experience uh, has been an absolute honor. So thank you so much for being on Unstoppable, David.
1: Thank you for being unstoppable yourself. And please have me back again or come visit me. on I would my phone.
0: Love to. Honestly, I was going to do a part two, how to, how to lose a hundred million, but there are so many open loops that I've got here that I would love to catch up at some point in the future. So uh, maybe at some point in the future when the, the stars align, uh, I'd love to talk to you again, mate. Ladies and gentlemen, David Melter. Thank you. <laughs> Bless you, mate. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. We do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way. And we're looking at five key areas. We're looking at your psychology. We're looking at your marketing, your sales, your leadership, and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, kerwinray.com.